Good morning, Veritas. Good morning. Um, all right, I want to start off a little bit differently. Normally, um, I jump up here, we just open our Bibles, go at it. We're going to be in the book of Titus, and so we're going to get there pretty quickly here. But if you've got a Bible, you can make your way to the book of Titus. But um, I, I want to introduce what we're about to read in Titus in a little bit of a unique way. I want to show you a picture of one of my favorite mammals on the planet. Uh, this is a fruit bat. Can you? There we go. So this, this is a straw-colored fruit bat. To give you a little bit of perspective, you know, people are kind of weirded out by bats, and I get it. You know, they're erratic, and they, if they get in your house, you know, they're like, ah, how can I get this thing? You know, and it kind of freaks you out. Just, just to give you a perspective, we understand those little Iowa version of bats. These guys have a wingspan of almost three feet. Okay, so we're talking about monstrous. It's like flying guinea pigs or something. Okay, they're just really big. Um, where I, I often go uh, in Zambia, and we'll be going back there in just a few weeks, um, these guys actually gather just north of where the Hope Center, where our orphan care center is. Let me show you what they look like when they all cluster around each other. So what they do is um, they go on this migration, okay? It is the largest mammal migration on the planet. About 10 million of these guys all gather, for whatever reason, just north of Serenje, Zambia, where, where we have our Hope Center. And um, they all come together, and they, they find this roosting place. In fact, get this. They all gather, for whatever reason, it's like one of these mysteries, why this migration happens. They all gather in the same spot every year for a few weeks, north of Serenje, Zambia, in about two and a half acres of land. So, like Mark, how many acres does Veritas own? Is it about... 20? Okay, so put that in perspective. We're sitting on about 20 acres of land. In two and a half acres of land, 10 million, you know, yardstick long wingspan bats all gather. And so there's not very much room for all of them. So they all, in fact, they'll get so heavy on these trees that sometimes the trees will collapse under the weight of all the bats hanging off them. Okay, so um, actually I get to, and I think I'm going to be taking Mark, we're going to go see these bad boys in a few weeks. So anyway, Go, go to one more picture. This is what it looks like when they decide to go out and feed for the night. Okay, so here's what happens. They all gather in that one spot. We're talking about two and a half acres. But that's not where you can't live off just that little spot. So every night they get up and they just scatter all over the place, eat all the fruit. They eat about five pounds about their body weight of fruit every night. And then come back. So what we're going to do is we're going to go look at that. So you can stand there and they just right over your head, or you can climb up. There's this mahogany tree where, the, where BBC has put a hide, a little platform, 70 feet up in this mahogany tree. And you go up there really early in the morning and then they're just flying right by. Just, I mean, okay. Now that might look like locust or something like erratic and craziness, chaos, bat chaos, you know? maybe your worst nightmare or something. It's actually not chaotic at all. These guys are perfectly synchronized. They know exactly what they're doing to where 10 million of them, think about, think about what it would take for some like civil engineer to figure this out, to put 10 million people all in about two acres and then have them go again, right? Think of what chaos ensues when there's an Iowa football game or whatever here, right? Okay, just think about 10 million of people all. So, 
This is perfectly synchronized. There's no rogue fruit bats. There's not one that's like, you know what? I'm taking a different flight pattern this time. You know, you know like it'd just be this domino effect, right? It would, it would create chaos. No, no, no. There's some that are scouting for snakes or other things that might be predators. The others are like, yeah, I think it's time. Let's go. Woo. You know, or whatever. There's, all of them have their role. They go in perfect synchrony into where all of 10 million can go out and 10 million all within a very short amount of time, can all come right back to where they're supposed to be for the night in their migration pattern. You guys, God did something miraculous when you look at fruit bats and think about how they've got this miraculous sense of the role that they're supposed to play, when they're supposed to fly, when they're supposed to roost, when they're supposed to eat, when they're supposed to... Right? Like, they didn't learn that. They didn't get a handbook. Wait, I'm on page three. Where are you guys at? No, it's not. They just have this intuitive sense. They know exactly what to do. And when they do this, they flourish. They're well-fed. They live long lives, right? And they just display something awesome about God. When you're just sitting there in wonder and awe, something beautiful about God is displayed. Okay. So we're going to get rid of the nightmare for a second. (laughs) You're like, how on earth is he going to relate that to Titus? Because as I was thinking about what's going on in the, on the island of Crete, where, where this guy Titus is, here's, here's kind of the meta theme of what's going on. God wants his churches, the churches on Crete and the churches in Iowa City, to put on an amazing display of flourishing like live out the lives that we were intended to live, like do what we were supposed to do so that not only do I flourish, but everybody around me flourishes. That's what God is trying to do. But here's the problem. We all have a tendency to go rogue, okay? We all have a tendency to be that fruit bat that just wants to chart his own course, that kind of goes. And when that happens, not only do I not flourish, the people around me don't flourish, and it kind of creates a little mini chaos wherever I go. So the whole book of Titus, you guys, is to get us back to see the way God's created order works when you're in line with the creator. Let's do that, people. Let's be those kind of people so that even the world around sits back like when I watch the fruit bat migration, can sit back and look at the church and be like, wow, there's something really right and beautiful and kind of mystical about the way they just flourish and and cause other people to, to flourish. Back in in chapter 1, verse 5, that's really the theme of this thing. Paul has said to Titus in 1.5, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, to to put it back right side up. Things are kind of chaotic, 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 I just made up a word, chaotic there. Things are kind of not the way they're supposed to be. I want you to help the church set things right the way they ought to be. There was, there was an image that Mark used last week about how we relate to God's authority in the Bible, and I want to just throw that back up there because here's what goes on. We get this wrong. This is why chaos ensues. We either put ourselves completely over the Bible. Remember these, these from last week? In other words, I kind of put the Bible under my foot. I might not recognize its authority at all, dismiss it completely, but whatever the reason, I'm ultimately in charge, and that book is like under me. Or sometimes... We can kind of go in partnership with God. Like, yeah, you and me, God. You know, I'll I'll let you take this one. Oh, I got the wheel on this one. I'm going to take this. Like, we're we're kind of friends, partners, or whatever. I call on God to be. It's not that I dismiss him. I don't reject him completely. But I kind of take over when I need to, right? 
The call of the Christ follower is to put ourselves under the authority of God, and when he speaks, I listen, right? That's what Titus is trying to do on the island of Crete, and through him now, through the ages, to us here in Iowa City, how do we become the kind of people who are well-ordered, who bring flourishing, who make God look miraculous, and, and help others around me flourish as well, because I put myself under his authority. So that's what we're going to be about as we get to chapter 2. All of us, as Christ followers, are to come under the authority of the Bible as it speaks to us this morning for our flourishing and especially maybe for the flourishing of others. So here's what I want to do. I want to read through my passage. Will you guys stand with me? I want, I want you guys to almost like standing in allegiance and, and full attention to what God is going to speak to us as we put ourselves under his teaching. Here's what he says in Titus 2. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They're to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message to be, is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. God, some things in this passage are clear and easily understood, and we nod along, and then there's others that kind of take us back, and we find them difficult. So what we're asking, Lord, is would you help us first to gain understanding, to, to clear up the misunderstandings, the misgivings we have, clear those up, Lord, and then ultimately, Lord, would you give us the courage, would you give us the trust to follow you, to order our lives under you. Because I know that you have wonders, you have health, you have flourishing in store for those who will follow you. And so, God, we trust you. That's the kind of good, good father that we have. And we want to hear from you. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, you can see there in verse 1, uh, if you remember, if you were here last week, if you've been on this journey through Titus, uh, you know that Mark walked us through. There's, there's a bunch of false teachers that have already landed on the island of Crete. They're, they're running around, and, and there's a lot of empty talk. Remember that from verse 10 in chapter 1? There's a lot of empty talk. There's a lot of deception going on. And so in contrast to that, he's like, all those empty talkers, deceivers out there, no, Titus You've got to proclaim what's consistent with sound teaching. That word sound means healthy, okay? Um, 
In fact, we get, we get our word hygiene from this word, healthy, flourishing, full of nourishment for those around. So there's got to be some healthy teaching going on. Why? Because we represent, whenever we open this book for God's people, we represent a God who cannot lie. That, that's what he introduced God like in, in the first part of chapter one. Might be a lot of deception going on, a lot of weird stuff being talked about. God does not lie. He is going to shoot straight with you. He, he's just going to lay all the cards. There's no deception. God's not going to be holding a card behind his back. He's going to shoot straight with us. God cannot lie. So Titus, when you get up, proclaim these things just consistent with that which is sound, which is healthy, which is flourishing. So what he's going to do, guys, in this, in this text that we just read, he's going to line up some, like, generally these, these profiles of people who would be sitting in the little clusters of churches around the island of Crete. It's like these uh, representatives, a representative collection of the average person who's going to be filing in and taking their place in the churches of Crete. And so he's just going to go boom, boom, boom. So he starts with older men. So he's, he's in his mind, he's saying, okay, there's Titus. He's going to be gathered God's people together. And the first guy I want him to eye are the older men, okay? I haven't met many older men. I'll let you know. Maybe someday if I become an older man. No, I'm just kidding. I uh, unfortunately am at a stage of life where I had to perk up for this one as well, right? Older men. And when you read what he says there in verse 2, you guys, look at that. Older men to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible. Sound in faith, sound in love, sound in endurance. Doesn't that just sound like the kind of description that should be, I don't know, characteristic of every old man? Doesn't that just sound like, well, yeah. That's what, like, father figures, even grandfather figures, isn't that just generally what's supposed to come to mind when you think of older men? Just, yeah, older men, they're worthy of respect. They're sensible. They've learned some lessons. Well, that's true. That should be the profile that we have in our minds. But the reality is, guys, our culture, and I'm assuming just like the Cretan culture, is just scandalized by older men who are like the antitype to this very description. Guys, you can't hardly wake up and, and you know, get in your car and listen to the news without hearing about some other older dude that's getting arrested for something awful scandalizing just what it means to be a just a noble sensible older guy it seems like we've got just a i don't know there's just a run on the market of scandalous older men and it just don't you get a little disillusioned at times like man is that just the path of all people that they get older and then everything just you know goes off the rails it's discouraging the reality is that's why he's having to bring, it's, it's like a corrective. He's, he's saying, older guys, like, you know that phrase, age is no sanctifier of the soul, right? It just means as you get older, you just become more of what you earlier on. Oh, is that on? Are we still good? Okay. All of a sudden I heard it kind of go out. Anyway, what I'm saying is often older men are just more entrenched in what they were as younger men, unfortunately. And so he's kind of correcting. He's saying, older men, no, be self-controlled. Self-controlled, you guys, that's going to be a, a repeated ingredient for all these as we go through. So I want you to note that, that self-control, he starts off with self-control. Here's the reality. Older men should have been practicing self-control year after year after year. Like, that's the goal. You start off as a new believer, 
you learn self-control, and by the time you get to be an older man, you should have been practicing self-control so that as you do that, the rest of this stuff just kind of falls naturally into place. You are respectful. You are sensible because you've been a man of self-control. And I love the little trilogy of things. Sound, and again, that's that same word, sound like healthy, flourishing, like green as new grass in faith, in love, and then endurance. In fact, maybe endurance gives a nod toward hope, faith, love, and hope, right? You should be seeing the, the virtues of Christ-likeness in older men. So I just, I want to hit pause for a second before we move on, because I, I, we need to get through all these profiles. But older men, and I'm looking in the mirror as I say this, but older men, guys, don't quit. Don't don't let up as you get older. Like, that's the time to step up our game of self-control. That's the time to step up our game on being respectable and sensible. That's the time to up our game in being sound or flourishing and green. Like, don't you love it when you meet an older guy that outwardly maybe is wasting away, but inwardly their faith and their love and their hope, their endurance is fresh and vibrant, and you just feel like, man, I just want to be around that guy because he's just flourishing like that, right? Guys, here's what I'm saying. We need to see that truth actually leads to godliness. That's what, that's what Paul has told Titus early on, chapter 1, verse 2. Truth leads to godliness. The church needs to see that that's true. Older men, I'm calling you out. I'm saying... Let the church see that truth really leads to godliness. You know why? We need hope. That word endurance. We need to see that faith isn't a seasonal thing. It's not an age thing. It, it flourishes into our older years. And by God's grace, older men, we need to show the church what it looks like to be a godly example of flourishing as an older man. That's what he's calling the older man out. You've got to set the pace. Let people see it in your life, Okay. Second category, older women. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to make jokes about older women. I'm not going to refer to my wife. Um, <laughs> she comes second service. I'll not do that next service. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, verse 3, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to, slaves to excessive drinking. They're to teach what is good. I want to stop there for a second. This idea of being reverent in behavior, uniquely to older women, he's going to use a couple phrases that he uses nowhere else in all of his writings. Nowhere else in the entire New Testament, in fact, you have this idea of being reverent in behavior, the only time in the New Testament. And it means to, he's going to grab a word that's actually more familiar with classical Greek, uh, like secular Greek, and the idea is this. Carry yourself like a priestess. <laughs> Carry yourself like a priestess. Like, think of the Greek temples and stuff. Now, why would he do that? Why would he rob a word like that? Because here's what's going on. What he's saying is, older women, walk and carry yourself as one who is very familiar with God, with his ways. You've been in the temple. You know how this works. You know how to carry yourself in a way that, that corresponds with somebody who's been in the habit of following God, right? Carry yourself like a, like a priestess. 
It's a beautiful just kind of metaphor, a beautiful word. And, and so what he's saying is, you're familiar with God. You've been walking with him. You've been walking in his ways. Let people see it. Let there be like an aroma of God-likeness when you walk into the room. Walk, carry yourself in reverent behavior. So don't slander. Don't get drunk. Now, those seem like, wow, that's pretty sharp. But understand, older women, like in many cultures, suddenly had time. They had time on their hands, like maybe they didn't earlier on when the kids were at home and they were busy being industrious and other things. So now as older women, the younger people around are kind of taking care of things around the house. So they got a little bit extra time on their hands. And so often, if you're not a Christ follower, you fill that time with godless things, like running around slandering people, gossiping, right? I mean, we all know that elderly neighbor that knows everything about everything that's going on in the neighborhood. And did you hear about, you know, whatever that, you know, that picture, that stereotype. But what he's saying is don't, don't be an elderly gossip slandering around. No, and don't, don't do excessive drinking. Why you've all of a sudden got time on your hands and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, life's been hard and I'm just going to kind of drink myself, medicate myself. No, 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 no. Carry yourself as one who has spent a lifetime following God. Carry yourself like one who there's like an aroma of Christ when you enter the room and teach what is good. So this is the other phrase that's used nowhere else about anybody else, never used elsewhere in the New Testament, only of these older women. Teach what is good. And it's an interesting word because he's not saying like, sit everybody down and give them your lessons. He's saying, let people learn goodness by just following you have such uh, an effect on people that they actually learn goodness. They, they see a picture of goodness. They see a picture of godliness because you've entered the scene, because you've entered the room, because you've walked among God's people in the church. Show us what goodness looks like. So, wow, what a, I don't know, it, it fuels you to be that kind of older man, that kind of older woman, that, that you've got purpose in the church to, to let people see what this looks like to follow God over the years. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Because particularly, now the older women are to have that kind of effect on all people, but especially verse 4, so that they may encourage, very narrowly now, the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled. There's that word self-controlled again, by the way, oft repeated. Apparently that's something that Cretans and Iowacidians Need to hear a lot. Okay, be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Now, I want to point out one thing real quick. Don't be thrown off, you guys, by the assumption that Paul has that all young women are married. Don't be thrown off by that. Because what he's doing, again, is he's casting his mind to the, the, the average audience that, that will be hearing Titus teach them in Crete And what was true in the first century Crete culture was true all the way up until just a generation ago, even in America, and that is that most young women ended up getting married. Most did. In fact, here's what, I I started looking this up because I was like, is that true? Started looking it up. Guys, in 1960, in America, we're not talking about ancient culture, in America, in 1960, 72% of adults were married. 72% of 18 and older. 72% of adults. And you say, well, wow, that was a thousand years ago. No, you guys, I was born about that time. And you're like, exactly. 
It was so ancient. No, I'm saying, like, when I was growing up in my youngest childhood years, three quarters of the adult population were married. That was true all the way up until 2017, 45% of the adult population in America is now married, right? You've got this dynamic from the first century all the way and across the seas, all the way even to America where most young adults were married, and that's not necessarily true anymore in this culture, Western cultures all around. I'm just trying to say, you know, and by the way, Paul himself, the author of this book, was single. He's not being dismissive of singleness. He's just trying to think of, in his day, the average audience out there. So don't, don't be offended. There's a lot to be learned, whether you're married, single, or not. But just know that, for the most part, the people assembled together were married. So as he's talking to the young women, that's what he does. So here's the thing that stands out. If you're one of the younger women, I want you to see what stands out. I want to point toward the kind of things that might get you to wince a little bit. Love your husband, love your children, and that phrase, workers at home. So gather that stuff together. Is that a profile? Am I uncomfortable with that? You know what I did? I read up, you guys. um, Speaking of older men who live a life of godliness and die well, one of those guys, in my mind, is John Stott. So John Stott uh, was a, a pastor over in England and, and just was a pastor, like a pastor to pastors, wrote prolific things, just beautiful, wonderful, like brilliant mind, but also very pastoral. Um, in fact, you guys, so much was he flourishing. He died, I, I think he was 90 when he died, and at about the age 80, I think he was 80, when Time Magazine included him on a list of 100 of the one hundred of the most influential people on the planet, John Stott was one of those. Okay, so at eight years old, still really making his mark or whatever. Okay, here's what he says about this text. Here's what he says. Did I say already that he was single? Single guy all of his life? Single guy all of his life. Here's what he said. It would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them. J.B. Phillips' word, home lovers, sums up well what Paul had in mind. I thought that was such a beautiful way to say it, that, that it's not a prohibition from women doing something outside of the home. It is saying... Love your home. Love your family. Guys, it's not indifferent from what he has said to the elders back in chapter 1, right? The very first qualification for being an elder in the church is that you love your wife and love your children well. And now he's looking at the young women. He's like, look up all the opportunities you have. You might be an energetic, you know, young one with all. If you choose to be in the vocation of married and with children, love them well. Be a pace setter at loving well. So the other phrase that might pop out is that word submission, in submission to their husbands. And once again, I want to I lean into John Stott. I thought he really taught me well. I want to pass this on. Submission, he says, contains no notion of inferiority, no demand for obedience, 
but rather a recognition that within the equal value of the sexes, God has established a created order. I want to stop there. Remember, God has a way that his creation will flourish together. There's a way that fruit bats can work together for the flourishing. There's a way that all of us as image bearers can, can get back into our created order, which includes a masculine headship, not of autocracy, but of responsibility and loving care. And then that phrase, so that God's word will not be slandered, Stott says, Christian marriages and Christian homes which exhibit a combination of sexual equality, but complementarity. That means we complement each other. We're not trying to do the same things. We're not having the same roles. There's a complement. We complement one another. So equality, but with a complementarity, beautifully commend the gospel. And here's the warning. Those who fall short of this ideal bring the gospel into disrepute, which is why he says that at the end, right? He says, so that God's word will not be slandered. Guys, I think for God's church to display what godly look, godliness looks like in a home, in a marriage, where spouses truly love each other, truly love their children, for that to be an anchor for God's church, man, I think that thing alone would cause people like people running all the way to Zambia to see Fruit bat migrations, I think they'd run to see what does that look like when we get back into our rightful place ordered after the word of God and see the flourishing, the flourishing of one another. Okay, I got a sale here. So look at, look at the next one, verse six. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. And then full stop. <laughs> okay, just, he's just given a grocery list for everybody else. And now he comes to the young men singularly. I don't know if that's because young men, you got a short like attention span. Like, can you remember one thing? You had one job. Okay, you have one job, young men. Be self-controlled in everything. He's like, I'm just going to put a blanket statement on this. Umbrella directive, self-control. And as you think about that, young men, he nails it, right? Now, obviously, if we think of self-control in your sexual life, that's, that's obvious. Control yourself. By God's grace, control yourself to be the kind of man God would have you be. But it goes beyond that. Your work ethic. Do you have a strong work ethic? Do you show up for work? Are you responsible for what you do? Do you have self-control? Do you, do you line yourself up? Young men tend to want to, you know, kind of break the barriers. Don't, don't hem me in. I want to be my own man. I want to be certain. No, no, no. Listen, self-control. Do you know how to do what you're supposed to do? Have, do you take orders well? Do you stay in self-control on the job site, right? How about your love of money, your love of stuff? Are you just a boy in a man's body who just has to gather his toys and gather his stuff and fill his pockets with money and I want to clamor for more and more? No, no, no. If you're a godly man, you have self-control when it comes to love of money, love of stuff. What about alcohol? Do you know what it is to actually say no to excess? To be able to have moderation, to be in control of all things so you're not abusive and, and, and things aren't tyrannizing you and enslaving you. How about some of you young men who have children? Are you in using self-control when disciplining your children? Do you fly into a rage? Do you get in town? Or are you so impatient all the time? Or are you the kind of young man that has self-control even when dealing with 
with your children and do you take a, an assertive role in the home because that's your job <laughs> to parent well. And so you're in there and, and you're displaying the Holy Spirit's gift and fruit of self-control, right? Guys, the real test of masculinity is not how much you can run, not how much you can lift, not how much you can accomplish. Actually, according to Titus, it's singularly, do you display self-control? Do you display self-control? Do you faithfully read your Bible? Do you faithfully pray? Do you faithfully have other disciplines in your life that demonstrate, no, 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 by God's grace, I am bridled. My nature is to be unbridled. My nature is to, you know, get rid of self-control. No, 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 by God's grace, I'm being transformed. God is setting me upright. I've been broken. He's setting me right. And that means I'm going to walk in self-control. Okay, then he turns to Titus. We're going to spend... a shorter amount of time on this. There's more words, but you get this. Make yourself, Titus, an example of good works with integrity, with dignity in your teaching. Your message is, is to be sound. There's that word sound again, like flourishing. It, it, it offers health. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So he's saying to the leaders, especially to those of us who get up there and you know, open our mouths with, with the Bible in hand, not how eloquent we are in teaching. It's not about eloquence. It's do you genuinely take this book and display what it looks like to come under it? Not that I just wield it and tell everybody else what to do. Do you display? That's what he's saying. Do you display your message is beyond reproach? You actually live this out. I was really, I, I, I'm pulling this out, not because I'm bored. It's because I want to read something <laughs> for you. Um, so I, I follow, there's, there's a, a New York Times uh, journalist that um, is, he's no fan of evangelicals often, but he, he's kind of a truth speaker, so I tend to listen to him. His Sunday column, this Sunday column, he's introducing it. He says this, I've periodically written about all the good that some Christian missionaries and others do around the world selflessly living out the Gospels. And by the way, he does that. He does point out, he, he will say, I've been, as an investigative journalist, I've been to the hardest places around the planet. I've been to the leper colonies. I've been to the, those subjected to the most harsh version of poverty. And every time I get there, there's two groups already there, the Catholics and the Evangelicals. And as intolerant as I become for their message and what they say, I can't get over the fact that some of the most noble people in the world are already in the hardest places around the world before I ever get there. So he has said things like that about evangelicals. So he says, if those guys were the face of Christianity, its reputation would be golden. But the blowhards, talking about preachers back in the States, but the blowhards have hijacked the face of the church particularly its evangelical wing, and they are causing it enormous damage. I, I read that, and I was stung, and I was reminded, that's why Paul is saying, hey, Titus, you be true to what you're teaching, because there are going to be antagonistic you know, journalists out there, not that time, well, kind of, journalists you know, who are waiting to find a chink in the armor, that you actually don't believe what you're saying. You don't live out what you're saying, but you're willing to throw that on other people. Don't be a blowhard and tarnish the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that one hit especially home for me. I want to wrap up, though. I want to look at uh, what he says 
verse 9, to slaves. Slaves are to submit to their masters and everything and be well-pleasing, not talking back, not stealing, pilfering, but demonstrating utter, utter faithfulness. And then I love this phrase, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior and everything. Guys, in the context, I just need you to know, this word slavery, immediately, I with you, wince. Slavery, you guys, in the first century was such a deeply embedded aspect of ancient Rome. You, you have to know um, it was an assumed that every culture had slavery. At, at this point in, in first century history, 50 million slaves lived and dwelled in the Roman Empire. A third of the city of Rome itself, a third of the population of Rome were slaves. Now, because of that, there were wealthy slaves, there were abuse slaves, there were strong slaves, there were landowning slaves, there, there were aristocratic <laughs> slaves, and then there were those who were treated poorly. I just need you to know, it was, it was this social construct of ancient history that, that's just unavoidable. But I just need you to know also, slavery always implies tyranny. It always does. It's a vandalism of God's ideal that image bearers treat one another with respect, that image bearers treat each other as image bearers, right? But in the first century, there was often a kind of peaceful... <laughs> slave culture, not, not when we think slavery, we often assign America's dark, terrible history of slavery. That wasn't always the case and probably was not necessarily the case in Crete. And so he's looking at what he's doing is, he, again, he's looking at the profile. Who's going to be gathered in these churches? A bunch of them would have been slaves. Some of them rich, some of them poor, some, but many of the people, especially the lowest ones, were the ones most responsive to the gospel, right? And so he's looking out, imagining the crowd that's going to be gathering, and he's saying, they're slaves, wealthy, poor, powerful, weak, but they're slaves. And what he's saying is, show faithfulness, show trust. Apparently, these slaves, many of them, even had access to the money bag, because he's like, don't pilfer, don't steal, don't, don't take, right? Because they had the opportunity to do that, much like employees now. You can Put your hand in the till. You can pilfer. You can steal. You can whatever. And what he's saying is, man, if you're going to be under someone else's authority, show faithfulness, show trustworthiness. And then I love this meta phrase that he uses that I think should be like, like kind of over all the different categories of people that he's talked about, adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. That word adorn, guys, make it beautiful. Uh, we, we get our word the cosmos from this word. We get our word cosmetics, the, the, you know, to, to make beautiful. We make it from this very word. Adorn, make the teachings of Christ a beautiful thing. Make it so that when you open your mouth to talk Bible, when you talk truth, it is so wrapped up in a life that is so attractive that people want to listen because there's something right like, I'm looking over at this world, it's so chaotic, so upside down, so like, like the vandalism is everywhere, and I come over and I see the church, God's people, families, individuals in my workplace, whatever, and there's something so right, so set to flourishing that, man, I just want to hear what you have to say. I'm adorning the teachings of Christ by the way that I live my life. So guys, I just, man, this, there's some hard 
difficult things for every one of us, every strata in here. But just know that it's all anchored in God, the God, the creator God who made all things. And when he got done making all things, he said, this is very good. This is very good. We're the ones that messed up very good. (laughs) We're the ones that messed up and vandalized shalom, peace, the way things ought to be. But guys, Jesus came to make all things new. Jesus came to take a mess and cleaned it up, to take something that had tipped over and set it aright. Jesus came, saw the plight we were in, the mess we'd made of things, and actually gave himself, poured out his life, became a servant of all of us, submitted himself so that he could pay our penalty and set things aright. May may our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people of Iowa City, may they be so captivated by lives set aright that they'd actually kind of travel far and wide. May they be captivated like I am about straw-colored fruit bats, right? <laughs> Bringing it all back. I'm serious. Like, may, may it be that you sit and wonder at the way this, how does that happen? May it be that God would so transform us, church, that we would be the fruit bats of Iowa City, right? These, uh, this anomaly, magical, mystical display of God doing all things well to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our goal, right? So I want to pray about that. Will you, let's put our Bibles away and let's, let's just take a moment, okay? Take a moment in your own soul. It would be like us, Lord, in these moments to maybe begin to think what this should look like for somebody else in the room maybe even for somebody sitting right beside us. That's our nature, Lord. We want to squirm out from under any responsibility that we would bear. But we sure want to point the accusing finger at somebody else. And so, Lord, what I'm asking is that you'd not let any of us off the hook. Would you press into us very personally, very deeply, and challenge us not just for challenge's sake, but Lord, we want to be transformed. Oh, how we would love to adorn the teachings of Christ, make much of Christ, because you do all things well. You do all things well. So we want to follow your footsteps. So give us that opportunity, please, Lord. Transform us to live these truths out. It's our prayer in Christ's name.